you really have to understand, particularly as a solo attorney, that people want to work with those that they like, trust, and they can almost relate to. So I've had to really understand that is that is why it's so important as a trademark lawyer, particularly to create standout branding. Welcome to How I Lawyer, a podcast where I talk to attorneys from throughout the profession about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it well. I'm your host, Jonah Perlin, a law professor in Washington, D.C. Now let's get started. Hello and welcome back. In today's episode, I speak with EJ Lee. EJ runs her own law firm based in Atlanta, Georgia, where she focuses on entertainment, copyright, and trademark law. EJ has described her practice as where creativity and legal protection collide. In addition to her client work, EJ also creates online courses in the area of trademark and copyright protection for those who need only limited legal assistance. She's active on social media and is famous for her referee with a whistle uniform. EJ is a graduate of Kaplan University and Thomas Cooley School of Law. Go Broncos. Welcome to the podcast, EJ. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so glad you're here. So I just want to start by talking a little bit about your path to the law. I know you grew up in Detroit, but I'd love to hear a little bit about your path. What made you decide to go to law school and ultimately become a lawyer? So I've probably been entertaining all of my life. My mother would probably agree with that. Certainly my dad would. So I knew I wanted to be in the entertainment space. As I was growing up, I loved writing journals. That was my big thing. In middle school, I um, actually wrote for the school newspaper. And so I got a taste of writing. And just to go back just a little bit in fifth grade, we did career day and I actually decided I wanted to be a judge. So I didn't have the role per se, but I dressed up in this bright pink suit, this two piece suit that my mom had got for me. And so obviously I didn't know at the time that you had to go to law school to be a judge. So fast forward in college, I was in the journalism program, but life happens. And so I had my son and going back to school, I started thinking about what I really wanted to do. And journalists don't make a lot of money per se, but then someone suggested going to law school. And so I ended up completing a paralegal program and then went straight into law school. And I knew that I was going to do entertainment, something along those lines. And yeah, that's how I got into law school. Totally. And what I love about that story also is it starts with an interest that is non-legal and remembering that lawyers were part of society, whether people like it or not, all over. And so you had this interest in entertainment and entertaining, and then both you thought maybe you could be a lawyer, but also people thought she might have the personality to be a lawyer, and you've been able to bring those two things together. I just think that's so fantastic and so true for so many in our profession. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and so you're in law school. You said you were interested in entertainment. How did you find this niche that you have now of intellectual property and copyright and trademark law? So again, when I was in law school, I pretty much knew exactly what I was going to do. It was for sure going to be entertainment in some way. At that time, obviously it was coming into learning how copyrights play into that, trademarks, the contracts, and all of those different things. It was pretty much, I uh, joined the Sports and Entertainment Law Society at mm-hmm. the campus that I was at and eventually became president of the group. And so as I was president of the group, other students that also had that interest, they would bring their expertise or their uh, connections to where I was able to work with 
other attorney who are also in the industry that had worked with people in the industry from Aretha Franklin to people in sports with the Detroit Pistons and things like that. So I started seeing the overlap. Again, as I was going through law school, I actually participated in a We actually learned the practice of trademark law and I really enjoyed it so much. I didn't understand how trademarks worked, but once I learned it, I just absorbed it totally to where that once I actually passed the bar and started practicing, I started seeing how a lot of entertainers first starting off don't necessarily have money, Mm. but trademarks, IP law is something that every business will have to think about. And yeah, that's how I got dived head in first with trademarks. And I really learned how to do that when I was in law school. Mm, That's fantastic. Was it ever a challenge either in law school or when you were studying for the bar or first practicing to do something that was a little bit further from the sort of litigation focused curriculum that law school kind of pushes? It sounds like you found your way by finding student groups and the clinic, but was it ever a challenge to carve out that more transactional niche, which I know a lot of people have trouble finding in law school. They don't find it until after the fact. I pretty much knew that I did not want to do litigation. That was my big thing. I always hoped that I would be in a position where I could keep clients out of court. As I started working with other attorneys that were already doing this practice, I saw that was possible that they're, for the most part, 100% transactional to where they're they're at hardly, if at all, in court. There might be some cease, cease and desist letters here and right. there, but very rarely are people going to court and you can make a very good living doing it. Now that I've been in this practice for a little bit longer, I'm in several different groups with other attorneys that are transactional for the most part from estate planning to uh, obviously, again, intellectual property patents. And I am actually going back to school so that I can sit for the patent bar. But I just love it because, again, it's the fun stuff about law because lawyers, we get a bad rap as litigation is concerned. It's never when people are happy. So I like that trademarks gives me that ability to be a lawyer that people like, if that makes Mm. sense. Yeah. And I guess what else about it? Is it, I've heard other transactional lawyers on the podcast in my life talk about it as, you know, a transaction, both sides need to feel like they're going to win. Whereas litigation by definition, one side is going to lose. It's a more adversarial posture as opposed to one of cooperation and creativity. Is that what draws you to that transactional practice? I guess you could say that for the most part, I haven't had to deal with an adversary being on the Mm -hmm. other side. With trademarks, most for the most part, we're filing things with the United States Patent Trademark Office. So I guess my adversary in that case is just making sure the USPTO examining Mm. attorney is on the same page. Because since I've been doing this for a long time and you start expecting certain things, there'll be that one examining attorney that's like, how did you come up with that argument as to why a trademark shouldn't go through, Hmm. right? Yeah. What's interesting to me about that also is when when I think of transactional lawyers, I often think of people making deals with the other side. What you're really doing is you're protecting other people's creativity, their future rights. So you, in some ways, you're like the least adversarial of the lawyers that I've spoken to. I had never thought about it that way. Yep. I'm very, there's been times obviously with the clients that have come to me where there has been an issue where someone's infringing. And so we've had to send cease and desist letters. I had a situation where my client created an online course. And so a participant in the course actually copied everything. 
everything in the course and decided to release their own course. So we had to send a cease and desist letter in that regard. And once we explained to the adversary what was going on, everything was magically disappeared. But otherwise, like you said, for the most part, it's very, it's the least adversarial. Mm. Most of the times we get that certificate and everything's great. And we're just monitoring things. I've had situations where a client had to get their social media handles back after receiving their registration. And it's very difficult to do that in social media, particularly with Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook without your registration. Yeah. So I was hoping we could dive a little bit more into trademark and registration because that's such a big part of your practice. For somebody, I have a lot of people who are listening to this podcast who are college students thinking about going to law school. They've never heard of a trademark. Talk me through a little bit at the most basic level, what a trademark is and what you're trying to protect and how you do it. So The best way to try to simplify this is to think of a trademark as a source identifier. It's your unique way of standing out amongst all of the competitors within your marketplace, whoever your consumers are, whether you're um, selling shoes, whether you're selling food, or if you're a lawyer, perhaps, Mm -hmm. um, we're all trying to stick out amongst everyone else that is providing that service or that product. Competition is the name of business. So we want the more competition we have, the better products and services that are are out there, right? Because of competition, we don't want monopolies. The way that you do that is, is by coming up with creative names. And so when you create a trademark, it should not be descriptive of what it is that you actually do. Because if it is, then your competitors have a legitimate reason to use those terms. So one of my favorite examples when we're talking about trademarks is Apple, because it's not descriptive of the product that's being given to us. But when you hear that, you're automatically thinking of the technology before you ever even think of the fruit, right? Right. Right, right. It's to the point where none of their competitors have a legitimate reason to use fruit to describe technology unless they're trying to bite on the goodwill that Apple has created. That's that makes a ton of sense. And we are you hinted at this, right? We're living in this creator economy, creator infrastructure. We met on social media, right? Mm-hmm. You find people that way. What's the sort of balance there where people want to do something? that they can protect the name like an apple, but a lot of times the product is their name or is who they are. How does that play into the trademark? For instance, and this is funny you said this because I just had a client that has a surname trademark. And so where trademarks are surnames only, they won't give you protection because you everybody has a right to use right. their name. So it has to be used in a way that you're putting a lot of marketing into it. If you are going the surname route, you want to make sure that you're using maybe a mark that is super unique, that has a lot of different elements to it. It's more creative than just the name itself, if that makes sense. So for instance, I guess a good example would be maybe Kate Spade for purses. So over time, she's built up what's called secondary meaning to where when you hear that name, most consumers hmm. will assume, know that it goes with purses or accessories, things like that. So it just takes a lot of marketing dollars. So it just depends on how much a consumer is willing to spend to reach that kind of level to where their consumers are, have that secondary meaning built Mm -hmm. up into it. But generally we don't like surname trademark. So that's why you want to create out something that stands out, which is again, like when we're talking about myself with my referee whistle official uh, uniform that I wear, because it allows me to stick out from the other trademark lawyers that do what I do. Yeah. And I I think the fact that you are both a lawyer that protects brands 
and a lawyer that is actively building her own brand is so fantastic. If I were trying to explain it to my students, I might just send them to your website and I'll be like, that's how you find a brand. It's incredible. Tell me a little bit about the kinds of people who come to you as clients and how they find you. Where are you pulling your clients from? So obviously you and I, we met on Twitter. So a lot of my clients are coming from social media, but when I started, it was from good old fashioned networking. So going to a lot of different events, I was a part of a group called NARA, which is the National Association for Recording Industry Professionals. Hmm. And so a lot of my longtime clients that have been with me since 2013, I actually met at those events. So they do a once a month brunch at different recording studios here in Atlanta. Obviously all of this stuff was before pre-COVID, they've uh, switched to a uh, virtual format since then. But we, again, we used to meet so many different people in the industry from producers to heavy executives within different types of recording of professional spaces. You name it, I met people there on top of the CLEs that they offered, which were invaluable for me learning different things as an attorney. A lot of my clients that have started from the beginning where I we worked through contracts to where now they're multi-million dollar companies in terms of in the entertainment industry or in the wellness space. We've just been rocking and rolling for a long time. So sometimes it's a good old fashioned networking. And again, Mm -hmm. just being active on social media from Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I have refused to get on the other platforms. Like you've got (laughs) TikTok now, you've got Snapchat. I try to stick with what I know works for me. And so Twitter and Facebook and Instagram have been those areas. Hmm. I had somebody else on the podcast describe that, you know, anyone, anyone can find a client, but if you can find a client that stays with you, that is both the best thing for business because it's repeat business, but it's also much more rewarding as a lawyer because it's a long-term relationship. Absolutely. And just to see the growth from where three of my clients started to now, it's just amazing to me. One of my clients, he was a producer in-house for a big artist here in Atlanta. I won't say names, but the contract was not that great. And so we were able to get him out of that contract. And now he has become a well-known name in the voice tag realm for producers. So I don't know if you're familiar with voice tags. No, I was going to say, what's voice tags? So um, if you're familiar with hip hop, a lot of the producers, when they do a track, their tag or their name is mentioned in the background of the song. Right. So Mike Will is a big time producer. He always has his in the background. Pitbull, he has a a Mr. Worldwide is what Mm. he says in the background of his song. There's another songwriter, producer, Rico Love, and he always says, turn the lights off. So they have trademark registrations on those taglines as sound. And Mm. also they have those tags mentioned throughout the song as producer tags. So my clients creates those tags using different voiceovers to the point, like I said, it's become a million dollar business. And so we did the trademark registration for the company because there was someone trolling it on social media. And we were able to get those handles back from social media after we did that. Hmm. Amazing. It's also what I love about law is you get to learn about so many different things. Like yours is much more interesting, but I remember when I was a baby lawyer at a law firm, one of the things I learned a ton about was text message pricing. Like I knew a lot about text message pricing because I worked on a case where that was relevant. Text message pricing. Exactly. This was back when you actually paid by the text message, right? Got it's it. a little okay. different now, but right. you learn these random skills. Some of them are good for coffee or for networking. Some of them things that people are like, oh, maybe I'll find the maybe I'll find the non-lawyer at the party to talk to. How did you, so I know you had the opportunity to start this at a clinic and then you said you took some CLEs. 
How did you learn the details and the business side of being a solo lawyer like you are? So you really have to just pay for what you don't know. Because I think of it like this, and this is probably a a long example, but like this, I I, I do natural hair. So one of the things that I learned from a natural hair stylist as far as cosmetology school is think of cosmetology school and law school as the basis of your learning about hair. Law school is the same thing. It's the base. You're going to have to build on that by taking other classes, other CLEs, working with other lawyers to know what it is that you don't know. So the business of law and even the business of hair is not taught in those schools to seek that other information out. And so obviously with the way social media has gone, we have so many different Facebook groups that have been created to where they are willing to teach you, but you're going to have to pay for something. And I'm okay with that by paying for what I don't know. So I've taken other CLEs over time that have helped me to build up my skills in this area. And then by practicing it for as long as I have, I've just picked up things as I've gone along. And, but again, whatever I don't, no, I'm willing to pay for this is right. It's really as simple as that. And it's a great reminder. I think that being a lawyer means you're being a constant learner, right? We're, we're recording this at the beginning of August, 2021. And I have students who are applying for their first sort of big jobs. And one of the things they always say to me is, but, but I've never done that before. How, why are they going to hire me? And I said, if you had done that before, you wouldn't be having your first interview, right? No right. one, no one's done it before. What they're hiring for is potential. What they're hiring for is inquisitiveness. What they're hiring for is being a strategic thinker. What they're hiring for is people who are good to interact with and are curious and want to learn. Yes. And you're right. You got, you're going to pay for it some way. Some way. Uh, Either some in way, time some or working for someone else. Or again, paying for it in a CLE or some type of three-week course that's going to give you the, the nuts and bolts of things. I also love that the USPTO offers a lot of courses and opportunities for us to meet up with other lawyers, other examining attorneys in the offices to where we can bounce ideas off of each other or here are some of our frustrations with some of the rulings sure. that come up. But it's like you said, we're constantly learning. It's like a doctor. Will we not want our doctor to continue learning? As we've been going through this whole pandemic, think of the fact that we've been able to get a vaccine seen within record time. Mm-hmm. That wouldn't happen without constantly learning, without yes. them constantly working together to where we were able to do that. Absolutely. And what are some of the non-legal skills that you think are necessary to succeed in the kind of law practice that you have? You really have to understand, particularly as a solo attorney, that people want to work with those that they like trust and they can almost relate to. So I've had to really understand that is that is why it's so important as a trademark lawyer, particularly to create standout branding. One of my favorite examples is uh, Slutty Vegan. I don't know if you've heard of it. No. Um, so it's a vegan burger spot here in Atlanta that has just ballooned. But what's so cool about it, it's not nothing new. It's just that company that is owned by Black woman has created such an experience that you felt like you were getting something new. Hmm. Even though I've had that same burger, it's the it's called the Impossible Vegan Burger Line. Yeah. I don't know if you're familiar yeah, with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're we using the exact same patty. Only difference is the creative name. The sl- it's called Slutty Vegan and all the, the burgers are these creative names like the Hottie Toddy or the Po' Boy. It's like really fun 
funny, really creative names, but that is how you attract people because you are creating an experience for them. They have a good time and they want to work with you. I think sometimes, particularly for me, I have a personality that's really goofy. I don't necessarily feel like I'm an academic, but I always try to make sure that my clients understand what it is that we're doing. They get to see it on a day in and day out basis to where they truly understand what it is that I'm doing versus just being the lawyer and taking it from them and just doing it. I walk them through it to where um, it helps them if they need to go back to the drawing board. It's not such a big deal instead of just putting things out, if that makes sense. So yeah. my clients like working with me. That's what my clients have always said is because I'm so relatable. I don't try to act like a lawyer, if that makes sense, even right. though I am. Right. You know? The greatest compliment is to say, you do, you're not like the other, you're not like the, <laughs> not other, like lawyers. the other lawyers. You talk about being a branding lawyer and you're big on your brand. You talk about finding clients on social media and you're big on social media. I had a you know, a totally different example, but I had a law firm partner I used to work for a ton who most of his clients were people he met where through his kid's soccer team. And, oh, wow. and right, because that's, it's whatever you do and who you are is a way that you can relate to other people. Cause one of the candidly, one of the things I hear a lot is I'm first generation or I don't have these established networks and I feel like everyone else does. And it sounds to me like, like your view of networking is a lot more positive. It's get out there and meet people and do it. Is that right? And I don't know where that came from, honestly, because I, it's weird. I feel like I'm an extrovert introvert, Mm -hmm. but if there's fun things going on, I'm probably going to absorb it, which is why Mm -hmm. NARIP was one of the first groups that I joined once I moved to Atlanta. I don't even know how I found it. I think I found it on Twitter. Again, everybody was so inviting. There were other attorneys there. There were other people in the industry that I knew I wanted to work in. And I didn't necessarily feel like I was heading towards being in a big firm, if that Mm -hmm. made any sense. For some reason, from what I had heard, most of those attorneys work a lot and they weren't necessarily happy. So Mm -hmm. obviously I would like to meet one who is happy, but so it steered me from wanting to necessarily even try to apply, Hmm. but I wanted to figure this thing out on my own. However, at the same time, I always made sure that I referred back to the bar if I had any issues in terms of making sure that I was staying within the ethical boundaries. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's one of the big things, particularly for newer lawyers, is that when you do work for a bigger firm, they're hand-holding you as far as ethics is concerned. So when you're a solo, you have to always make sure that you are within those bounds with the the bar. So always calling them if you have questions. They have the ethics hotline. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's another thing that lawyers don't take advantage of is the bar. They have so many resources and we're paying for this every year. I was going to say, I think a lot of people (laughs) just think of it as a place they have to sink money, but it sounds to me like you've really used it to help you functionally run your practice. Absolutely. In addition to mental health has been a challenge within the last two years. So the great thing is the bar offers for Georgia. I don't know how many, what other states do this, but they offer us six counseling sessions Mm. with mental health counselors. And so that has been pivotal when there might be something that I'm unsure about and just want to make sure that I'm taking care of that as well. I think a lot of times we as lawyers are expected to know everything. Like we're super human. We're learning just like you are. We took the bar. Yes. But that does not make us superhuman. I totally totally agree. And just the idea that I think lawyers by nature are often problem solvers, but it doesn't mean that we don't have, don't have problems (laughs) or that we can solve our own problems. And I think I know where I teach it at Georgetown, this has become mental health has become a much bigger part of training lawyers. We're training people to be full people in the profession. And I think that's really important. I'm really glad you bring it up. I guess my question about being a solo is on the one hand, you're in control. On the other hand, how do you make sure 
that it doesn't control you and you're online 24 seven. And cause you can't say, Oh, I'm going on vacation. Call Jim down the hall. H- how do you protect your yourself from being uh, consumed by the solo practitioner world? One thing is I had to set um, a time limit on how many hours I'm going to work for the mm-hmm. week and stick to that. I try to stop working at about seven o'clock, but then on the days where I have to go to the gym, those days are my shorter days. So mm-hmm. usually on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, those are the days where I quit work early and I just don't mm-hmm. look at it. I don't respond to emails. I don't do any of that stuff. I also had to finally relinquish and get an intern because mm-hmm. <laughs> I was just doing way too much on my own to where I was feeling a little burnt out. And so that has been a game changer for me by just letting someone else take the reins and delegating. It has been hard because sometimes you just feel like if you don't, if you don't delegate it's, or if you don't do it yourself, it's not going to get done correctly. Totally. I have to get better about that. But that has been a game changer for me is I set a time limit. I have my son graduated from high school this year. Congratulations. Which is crazy to me, but that has freed up a little bit more time. But at the same time, just mindful that when it comes to family, those are the things that we're working for. So mm-hmm. I always keep those in the back of my mind, but I just usually set up. So I work about 35 hours a week on the business and mm-hmm. things like that. And my intern takes care of the admin. Yeah, That's it's great. just been great by having an intern for sure. Yeah. Um, and then next year, we're definitely going to be hiring a full-time paralegal and an attorney. So I'm excited wow. about that. Wow. Wow. That's scaling up. Yeah. That's what I like to hear. That's great. <laughs> but it also, I, I don't want it to be glossed over that the way you described your schedule is as a schedule, right? Something that I keep telling myself candidly, and I think I a lot of lawyers need to hear it is if you don't set a schedule, it can take over. There's always more work to be done always. and, and just coming up with a schedule and sticking to it, even if it sounds simple, it sounds like for you, it's been very powerful. And I've heard many attorneys say it, that. There was a time when it wasn't. So that yeah. I've had to get to this point. But yeah. there was a time when I was just burning the midnight oil and I was burnt out. So yeah, yeah. And sometimes health will cause you to take a back seat, whether you want to or not. So right, right. Whether I like... would rather be in control of that than the other sure. way around. Sure. And are there other recommendations besides setting a schedule that you'd have for somebody who thinks they might want to go out on their own from the start and try it themselves? Any other tips or techniques you'd recommend for those kind of people? Definitely putting systems in place. Anything you can do that can be automated, d- done in the background, I highly recommend. There's so many different ways to do it. I could name a thousand of them, but there's Dubsado, there's my case, there's Clio. I'm working actually with a company ran by a lady named Carrie James, who is helping me to automate a lot of things in the background, including my marketing Mm -hmm. and all those things. So those things will be working on autopilot in the background to where I can just focus on being a lawyer. As I have a YouTube channel called Mm -hmm. Blow the Whistle with EJ Lee Law, where we're walking through the 12 technical files, which is a basketball reference that I see most often in what I call the IP game. I was editing the videos myself and that was just taking up too much time. So anything that you can delegate and give to someone else to do for you, please do it. You're a lawyer. You just know your strength and your right. weaknesses and just pay somebody to do it. It would be so much, it's so much easier by doing it that way. It really has. And I imagine, and I look as somebody who is only starting to get some help on this podcast, I'm not a good person to speak, but I imagine that ultimately by putting a little money in on the front end, you can actually end up making as much or more on the back end, right? Because of marketing, because it allows you to take on one more client, which is worth way more than the amount of time you'd be spending editing your YouTube videos or whatever. Absolutely. Yeah. So what is that? 
Yeah. So let's, I want to talk about your content creation. There aren't a whole lot of lawyers out there who are uh, making online courses, who have a YouTube channel. Tell me a little bit about how you see that as part of your practice, the sort of courses and an online teaching component to your practice. So Obviously, I think of it as this, I'm a business owner. And so I've gone to different conferences and different things talking about businesses and creating tiers in terms of your lower price point things, your second tier things, and then obviously your higher ticket items, which is clients working with me directly. So I wanted to make it to where clients really did not have an excuse to not be able to work with me in some way. So either you're going to be able to take an online course, an instant video download with a workbook that you can work through. You have eBooks that you can do, and then you can watch the video content whenever you want. So I made it to where, again, I have, have eliminated excuses from clients not being able to take care of their intellectual property until mm. the last minute or when, when something happens, because I've provided you a blueprint. You literally see me walk through this process from start to finish, from doing the trademark searches to going through the ID manual, which is how we choose the protection classes that apply to those clients, but actually completing the application, it actually takes some of the intimidation out, but also again, it gives them an idea to see what it's like working with me. And then if at any point they don't want to do it on their own, they could always come back to me later, hmm. but there's no excuses. I can reach the lower budget clients to all the way up to my higher budget clients that are part of my subscription service that I have or just doing their trademarks for them and monitoring for them. So I've created to where there is levels to this, as you can say, mm. right? Yeah, I, I was gonna, I, I guess I'm just curious, as you go up the tier in price, obviously that means up the tier in the amount of hours you're putting in and the amount of in individualized work. Do you ever worry that you're like cannibalizing your own, yourself by giving away all the secrets for free? Actually, no, because like I said, the clients that have taken the courses, they're coming back. So I'm giving you something. I, obviously, I, there's no way to teach everything in one course. They're going to come back anyway. Right. And you have the expertise and all of those exactly. pieces too. Give them an idea of how this works. You want to hit the pain points. We're telling you the what, not the how. If that makes mm. sense, you're going to come, you're going to watch the what, but you're going to come back to, for me. Yeah. That's interesting. Also, I think, I think the whole legal, the practice of law is reckoning with this point. I think your particular area of law, a lot you can actually do without it, without being a member of a bar and without being a JD. That's not true for a lot of other areas of law. No. But as we talk about legal tech and a lot of people are talking about law as a service, as opposed to the traditional hourly model, mm -hmm. in some ways, I think your kind of, your work is, a, is unique, but will become less unique as we keep going. I, I, do you feel the same way or how do you feel about that? I don't necessarily think it will, um, I guess you're saying more so that it would be commodified in a sense. Yeah, there was, yeah, you'll see more courses about how to do it yourself. You'll see more software doing what actual lawyers were doing it manually in the past. Possible, but I just forget the clients that I've had a long time don't have time to do it themselves. Right. So that's usually what I keep hearing is that they don't have time to watch the course. They'll buy it, but they end right. up coming back anyway, because right. they don't have the time to sit down mm. and do it. They don't have right. the time to sit there and monitoring. And so I think that that is why it will never be commodified completely. Mm. I love that. I love that. And maybe the course makes them realize how much you actually do have to do. And you're that you're then you've positioned yourself in their mind as the expert. Why wouldn't they come to you? 
Exactly. So I don't necessarily think this will ever be commodified. And I think also because they have to continue with maintenance of, of their trademarks, right? Uh, they have to continue, continuously and consistently use it. They're coming back to me for monitoring services to make sure that no one's infringing on their stuff. So there's still things to do even mm. after the trademarks have been registered. Right. It's, it's you want to say to the doctor every year, you're like, I hope I don't see you until my next checkup. Same thing yep. often happens with your lawyer. You're probably going to see them again, but you'd like it to be as far in the future as possible, if you can make right. that happen. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of yeah. sense. We're almost coming to the end. And I just want to talk to you a little bit about where you see your practice going, either trademarks and, and copyrights and patents in particular, or you said your firm is growing. You know, I love talking to people who are on the precipice of doing something new because so many lawyers are afraid of newness. And yes. so I'm so curious about where you see your practice going and the things you're excite most excited about and the things that you're the most apprehensive about, if you don't mind sharing. So I guess I'm, I want to add patents, right? So when I was in law school, I took a couple of patent classes and I really loved the practice of patent. But didn't know that when I was in law school that you have to have that technical background mm -hmm. to do to take the patent bar. I wish I had done it back then. It's taking the science classes when I was still in school versus sure. working and then going back to school. But this has been on my mind for the longest time. I am going back to school to get the science credits that I need to sit for the patent mm -hmm. bar. So I'm going to need to take about eight classes, um, obviously, because I'm working full time as a lawyer and everything. Right. I won't be able to take as many. I'm going to take sure. one per semester. But that's the thing I guess I'm a little bit apprehensive about because I've heard people talk about the patent bar. But I try Try not to let other people's fear projections come on to me. Hmm. So I'm going, I'm just going to do it. So that's the that. one thing that I'm a little apprehensive about. But other than that, I'm excited because like I said, I just launched my legal subscription service. Mm -hmm. And so I've created several tiers to where I have my client that may have just started a business to the client that's making seven to six figures that we're able to manage. And so as that's growing, needing more people to help me manage that. But technology has become to where everything can be automated. I've already loaded uh, preloaded template contracts and courses and things like that for the clients to be able to get to the for themselves. And then we have maybe one or two meetings a month that yeah. I can easily do. So it's been great. It's been yeah, great. It's, I just, I'm really excited. Yeah. I'm just so impressed. I, I think you, you say all these things like everybody knows what they're doing and they could do it too, but it takes so much foresight and work candidly, like hard sweat work on the front end to be able to let people succeed from your material while you're sleeping or while you're working for another client. And I just think that's so fantastic that you're owning that and really pushing it to its limits. I, there was definitely a lot of hesitation before launching the courses. I always kept thinking, okay, what about the ethics? What, what is this? How does this not you compete with LegalZoom or looks like right. LegalZoom? But I, there are so many other lawyers doing it. And I just said, screw it. And then I also talked with the bar just sure. to make sure that I covered my bases because right. I worked way too hard for this bar license to let it go because of some ethical issue. But all right. that to say is that I, I put in the work. This has not been something that was overnight. Hmm. I was licensed to be practiced in 2013. It's 2021. I, how many years that um, Canada? It's been a while to get to this point. So I would say within the last two to three years, I've started to see the fruit of my labor. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you, had know, to, you had to do enough to know what to teach. Exactly. Teaching is its own other animal. Whole other animal. The technology, just recording, we were talking before I hit record about editing technology. And that's, we don't take that in law school and you've put in a lot, but it sounds like there's a lot of growth potential in the future, which is really exciting. 
I'm super excited to be able to, to say that I'm in a position to be able to take on my paralegal full-time, mm-hmm. my intern, and hopefully an associate next year. I'm really excited. God, God has been good. So despite the <laughs> pandemic, right. um, in a sense, it has helped me to manage my time again because I'm at home more to try to, again, stick to a schedule, make sure I work out, check in with a therapist and things like that, prioritizing mm-hmm. health. Like a lawyer is what I do. It's not who I am, if that makes sense, right? Hmm. Yeah, no, that so, makes a lot of sense. And do you feel like your practice, I know, is not, you have some clients that are local, but your practice is far more than just the Atlanta metro area, is video conferencing and text messaging and social media making it so that you can draw from a larger client base than you would have been able to 10 or 20 years ago? Funny enough, when I started, most of my clients, besides, I guess, with the networking stuff, have been from other places. I have Hmm. clients in Chicago. I have clients in Virginia, North Carolina. They're all over Michigan, obviously, from where I'm from. But yeah, because we're in such a global society and because trademarks is a federal practice, you only have to be licensed in one state. I literally can do my practice from on the beach, which is another Mm. reason why I love this practice so much because it gives me freedom of control of my time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And my, my, the people that I work with do not necessarily have to be in the office. We can be, we can use the video conferencing to to plan out our week and the things that we need to get done. So it's just been amazing. And as we see the pandemic has showed us that we don't all have to be in the office to get things done. And I I think some people have been doing it for a long time. I think society now recognizes that this is going to be an ongoing part of who we are doesn't mean we're never going to see people face to face but but it's a part of it's a part of our practice just like it's going to be a part of our social life and our kids education and all of those things yeah Um, we're able to adapt we got to be able to adapt absolutely so ej i always end these conversations by asking for some advice you've given a lot already but what do you wish you could go back and tell yourself when you were graduating law school? What's the thing that you know now that you wish you could go back either graduating law school or starting law school that you'd want to say to to you or somebody in the same position? I would have to say that authenticity will be rewarded. It's about being who you are at your core. Not everybody's going to get it and that's okay. But the ones that do are going to refer you out to so many different people to where those that are for you will come. Authenticity has just been a game changer for me. Thank you so much, EJ. This has been so fun. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This has been awesome. 